everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, we have an impressive guest, as I'm joined by Doug Peterson, President and CEO of S&P Global, one of the largest companies in the U.S. with a current market cap of almost $90 billion that specializes in providing ratings, benchmarks, analytics, and data to the capital and commodity markets worldwide. Prior to SMP, Doug held multiple leadership positions at Citigroup, including roles around the world as CEO of City Japan and City Uruguay. He's also a proud alum of our very own Wharton School. In this episode, we talked about Doug's journey from childhood in New Mexico to international student in South America to global corporate leader, the important role that Wharton had on his career, and how it sparked his love for finance why S&P Global is focusing on data analytics and artificial intelligence, and how it has built a fintech portfolio around these topics, the rise of ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors in capital markets around the world, particularly over the last year, leadership advice, and Doug's approach to managing an organization with tens of thousands of professionals, the important difference between visiting and actually living in a place, and why he actively pursued an international career from early on, and a whole lot more. And now join me in a fascinating conversation with Doug Peterson. Well, Doug, welcome, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. And I should say, welcome back home, as we do have a a very distinguished alum uh, joining us today. How are you doing, Doug? I'm doing great. It's wonderful to meet with you today. I am so excited that you're going to be graduating soon and going into the world of fintech. We need people like you out there. Oh, thank you, Doc. Thank you. I'm I'm excited, but I'm also a bit sad to be leaving. (laughs) But so, Doug, I I wanted to um, start by hearing a bit about your journey. It would be good to to go back to the beginning, right? Because you have uh, had quite an interesting career, very global journey, right? So maybe you could take us back the beginning and how, how you got to your current role as a CEO of S&P Global? I might go back further than the beginning than you could ever imagine. But when I was growing up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, as a little kid, I used to listen to the radio and see how far away I could hear something. And I'd pick up radio transmission from Mexico or from Nebraska, and I'd be so excited. And I always wanted to have an international career. When I was in college, I studied abroad for a year in Bogota, Colombia. I learned how to speak Spanish. I studied math and history. I worked in an oil company for three years as what today would be called a data scientist or a quant. And then I went to Wharton. And Wharton was a a place that I really opened my eyes to all the possibilities. And I realized how much I loved finance and I wanted to have a career in finance. And when I left Wharton, my goal was to work at a company where I could go into international business, someplace where I would be in the line business, a place where I could actually eventually become a, a senior executive. And I wanted to do something where I knew I could go overseas, not just do a job out of New York, but actually live overseas. And I went to City. And at City, I had three careers. I was a banker in Argentina, New York. I was a country manager in Uruguay and uh, Costa Rica. And I was an enterprise-wide manager in various roles. I was the chief auditor of Citigroup. I was the CEO of the regional role in Japan. And I was the chief operating officer before I left to go to S&P Global. So very quickly, S&P Global, when I joined, it was right after the financial crisis and Standard & Poor's rating agency, which I originally joined, 
was going through a major transformation from being more like a publishing company to become a financial services company. And I had a background where I knew the regulatory framework really well. I loved finance. I loved credit. It was like a dream job for me to come in and help transform that business. And it was going along. I was asked to take on the role of CEO of the entire group, which at the time was McGraw-Hill. And then I'd been through a major transformation from a publishing company to a financial company, from doing acquisitions and divestitures. And just recently, we announced that we're going to be acquiring IHS Market to to really form the the premier data and financial information company with a market cap, which will be kind of in the $120 billion range. Fascinating, fascinating. And Doug, so this is, after all, a fintech podcast, and we love to talk about the future of the financial industry. And there's no doubt that that future is at the intersection of finance and technology, right? So I, I wanted to hear your take on this subject. And based on some of your activity, some of the SP Global activity, like your investment in Kensho, it seems like you're paying particular attention to the role of data and AI. Is that the case? Yeah, about four years ago, after we had changed the direction of what was McGraw-Hill, changed the name to S&P Global, and said that we're going to focus everything on data, analytics, research, for markets, global companies with scale. That was the way we conceived of it. We said, well, let's take a step back and think, what is, what is our world going to look like 10 years from now? And when we ask that question to ourselves, then fintech, that's what comes up. It's all about finance and technology, and then data is at the core of that, that moves in between. And that's when we had just started investing in venture capital firms that were fintech firms because we wanted to either find opportunities for us for investing, companies that we might buy in the future. Um, one of them was Kensho. We can talk more about that. And then there was another view on the fintech that we wanted to be able to see what was happening in all the most innovative minds coming together, things where people could do things without the constraints of being in a big company. And so we started our fintech portfolio. And then at the same time, we did some scenario analysis and we said, what's the world going to look like in 10 years? And we said, 10 years from now, people will still be making decisions. You're still going to have a trader. Even though a lot of trading today still might be done by machines, you're still going to eventually have a trader, a risk manager, a CFO, a treasurer, an executive who has to make decisions about which countries to go in and out of. But we said that a lot of those decisions are going to be assisted by machines, whether it's uh, algorithms, it's modeling, it's advanced technology or advanced data analytics that are going to be used to make decisions. And then that's when we said, okay, not only are we going to invest in this, we're going to actually start doing it ourselves. Fascinating. And I'm particularly interested in the fact that you've been actually partnering and investing in not just fintech companies, but sounds like venture capital funds. Is, is that the case? Maybe you can tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So we said that there's a couple paths we could go. One would be to invest in A round and B rounds directly. But we also said there's companies that are fintech venture capitalists. So as an example, one of them is called Greenvisor based in San Francisco. And we were a seed investor in that uh, fintech VC fund because we said they have the ability to really go out and find those startups and those entrepreneurs and those brilliant people that have ideas how they're going to disrupt us or disrupt some of our competitors or disrupt the financial markets. And so we invested with, with Greenvisor. That was the first group we're with. We're with another one called Arbor Ventures. 
And we, we have a couple of these groups that we've invested in. So they can have a portfolio of 15 or 20, 30 different fintech investments, which we would have a hard time doing. And I don't think of ourselves as we're not a venture capitalist fund. That's not what we do. That's not our approach. That's not how we think about ourselves. We're really looking for the best technology, the best data tools, the best analytics and the smartest people that we want to learn from and work with, and maybe in some cases, even bring those companies into our group. And also, it seems to me that you enjoy working with founders and entrepreneurs, right? Uh, maybe you can tell us about that process of how you find some of those best companies to partner with and what gets you excited about that. Well, what gets me personally excited about it is just understanding what the future is bringing and working with people that bring this passion and this interest, and that they also want to have this passion and interest about what I'm passionate about, which is finance. I love finance. It's something that I love to do. It's been a career I started at Wharton, and I've had that now for 30 plus years as in a finance career. And so to find people who are redefining it, rethinking it, and bringing technology and new ways of programming and algorithms that I wouldn't have necessarily ever thought of. That, that's what's exciting to me, to find a new generation of people who are bringing new tools and new techniques to finance. In addition to that, we have people spread across our company that they're passionate as well. So it's not just that I love doing this, it's that we have a whole team that's embraced this and we've found ways that we can work in different ways. So we have something like a Kensho. Kensho is an AI machine learning company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that originally we invested in Kensho uh, through a B round. We added additional capital because we were so uh, pleased with what the kind of work they did, and then eventually bought the entire company. And when we bought Kensho, we left them in Cambridge with their own style of working. We didn't integrate them into the company because I wanted to keep that brand, that energy they had, the ability to tap into the best talent and bring them into their company. And then for them, they got the stability of a large shareholder who's going to leave them alone and then access to this incredible amount of data that goes back 40, 50, 60, 70 years. You can't imagine how much data it is and how rich it is. And you can't get that from a Google search. You only get that when you own it. And so they brought that along with them. But back to your original question, I love meeting with entrepreneurs learning from them and always finding new things that are going on that might reshape the entire industry. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. The, the highlight of this podcast is talking to leaders and entrepreneurs who are really creating the future. So Doug, let's talk a little bit about ESG-driven funds. I did a little bit of research and actually found that the first ESG ETF goes back over two decades and actually came out from an S&P global company, right? Is this a trend that you've seen accelerate recently? The ESG, environmental social governance factors, which have become a really important way for people to evaluate their investment portfolios. It started probably 15, 20 plus years ago in the Scandinavian countries. And now, if you go to Scandinavian countries, it's embedded in all their decision-making. It spread to Eastern Europe, to Western Europe, to Northern Europe, into um, Asia. And now it's just really starting to take off in the US. And it's starting from asset owners. So if you think about an asset manager, an insurance company, there's somebody that ultimately owns the funds that they manage. And whether that's somebody who's a retiree or a pensioner or somebody who's a young person, they're starting to ask the question, what are my funds being invested in? I want to know. And I want to know 
Is there a climate impact? What's the social factors of the company or the fund that I'm investing in? And so this is starting to become one of the most important topics that people are speaking about. So across S&P Global, over the last five years, I asked all of our teams to start looking at ways to supply solutions and data and research and analytics on ESG to the markets. And we had the fortunate position that in S&P Dow Jones indices, we already had Dow Jones sustainability indices that go back over 20 years. And over the last five years, we've done some acquisitions. We bought a company called TrueCost, which has climate data on over 15,000 companies. We bought another company called uh, SAM, which it came from Robico SAM. It's a sustainability assessment tool that they use. And we have over 7,000 companies in that. And we built an ESG evaluation tool, green bond ratings. And about a year ago, I started saying, well, you know what? We let the thousand flowers bloom, but now we need to bring them together with a real business proposition. And so we've now put all of our ESG capabilities into one team, one group in the company. And now they're coming together to put together all of these solutions and services so we can serve any kind of interested investor or a corporate executive or a regulator, et cetera, with ESG solutions. One last thing I wanted to mention, we also decided a few years ago that if we're going to be a credible ESG solutions provider, we also have to have the highest ESG standards ourselves. So we already had a board that there was a split between the chairman and the CEO. We have really high quality governance practices and board practices. We have our own environmental program. We had recently committed to reducing our emissions by 2025 by 25%. That includes scope one and scope two emissions, scope three emissions. We also have done things that we're working with our suppliers, our supply chain. And then on the S side, we've always had very good practices, but we look very closely at those, our, our disclosures, our salary scales, our internal equity how we think about diversity and inclusion, et cetera. So we've said that we have to also be a credible ESG in our own company. Now, Doug, unfortunately, we're talking a year into a pandemic that has dominated headlines. And I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a, the fear that there was going to be a pullback precisely in the ESG trend. Clearly, that's not the case for you, for S&P Global. How about your peers? Have you had conversations with your peers about this? It's interesting because there was that view that with the pandemic, there would be a pullback. It's actually created the opposite effect. People are now even more interested and more invested in it. You might recall that there were some photographs of some of the major cities around the world, New York, Milan, Tokyo, Beijing, et cetera, where you saw a before and after photo. And before the pandemic, you had everybody driving to the office and trains, et cetera, and you had all these skies that were dark and they were polluted. And then during the middle of the pandemic, with nobody going to the office, nobody traveling on airplanes, all of a sudden you saw these photos, the after photo of these completely clear skies. Now, that's sort of a fantasy land that we're ever gonna we're gonna be there forever. But what it did is awaken people's interest in in the E of the ESG. Then we had the situation with George Floyd which all of a sudden made people look in the mirror and say, you know, I've been talking about all the great things we're doing in our company or our organization, but are we really doing enough? Is there more we need to do? And so it awakened a real interest and commitment in corporations in the US and around the world to look much more closely at their S factor, the social factor, their own diversity inclusion programs. How do they think about their supply chains? And so I think that the pandemic started with people kind of 
thinking, well, we're, everybody's going to just stick their head in the sands and be worried about risk, but it's actually gone in a different direction with ESG. It's certainly been a trend in, in this podcast as well. Doug, switching gears a little bit, you're leading a, a large organization today, but you've also led other groups in other companies right uh, throughout several years. I would love to hear some of your lessons from leadership, right? First of all, how do you keep your ear to the ground with a company with over 23,000 people? And sounds like it might be a lot more in the future, in the near future. Yeah. So first, you know, very curious to hear about you know, how you stay on top. This is a great question. I've heard so many CEOs, I include myself in this, they say, if, if I know about something, it's probably too late. Because it's not necessarily the place that people run to, to give bad news or to keep the organization informed about things. Because you have a structure, you have functions, a CFO and a head of people and a general counsel and you have business heads, etc. So you have to stay informed. And one of the ways I stay informed, which has been very difficult during the pandemic, is walking the floors. I love going out around the world, visiting our offices around the world and spending an extra day meeting with our employees, doing employee roundtables. Uh, when I get in the elevator, I say hello to people, ask them how they're doing. I know that's just a tidbit. You're not picking up a lot of information that way. But by me getting to know all of our leaders personally, one-on-one, -on -one, it gives me a network of knowledge around the organization and people that I check in with, they check in with me. I have some people that I mentor in our organization, um, helping them think about their careers, about their development. I'm a big believer in people development, that people need to have opportunities to grow and to progress in their careers. But uh, one of the things I've had to do during the pandemic is actually, instead of going out and visiting people in their offices and traveling around the world, instead of seeing people face-to-face, -face, I've had to actually schedule those kinds of meetings uh, via Zoom calls and, and Teams calls. As an example, yesterday, I had a roundtable with 15 of our employees, and they were from India, from Mexico, from London, from different cities around the United States. So it was a call with 15 people. We spent an hour and a half talking about the company. Probably, I spoke probably 75% of the time and 25% of the time, I was able to get some feedback from our employees and get some thoughts from them. But it's really important to keep the communication channel open. And one of the things... I talk about you have to learn how to listen, not just talk. But one of the things you have to read very carefully in is cues of understanding what are the questions mean that you're getting. So we have ways that we get questions when we do town hall meetings or we do a, something called a vibe survey every year. It's like a voice of the employee survey and we get every year. But I find the scores themselves are interesting, but it's really valuable to read the questions and the comments that came back in. So there's many different ways you can stay, keep your finger on the pulse, so to speak. And I try to use all of them. And I'm sure you've picked up a lot of this along the way. How about those leaders that are just getting started, entrepreneurs who might be leading an organization with 20 people today, but they're future unicorn founders? What advice would you give them? Well, I give two pieces of advice. First is that you have to always remember what is your North Star. And by that, I mean, you know, what's your direction? What's your strategy? What's your vision? And that in this day and age, it has to be around a customer. Who's your customer? What is the solution you're trying to bring? What is the problem you're trying to solve? What are you trying to disrupt? 
And, and the reason I say that that vision, that direction is so important is because it means you can always come back to something. You can always come back and say, well, this is where we're headed. So if something's not going that direction, you can always hone back in. And then the best strategy and the best vision is going to be backed up by values. And so there's a kind of a system of a vision, a strategy, the values that go around that. But then the second part of this goes to, you need to talk to your people. I have this theory that the worst conversations that people can have are in anonymous blogs. You know, when somebody can write something that their name doesn't have to be there, they can write all kinds of stuff that's absolutely outrageous. So if you go from that to kind of a blog where you, your name has to be there, to an email, to a text message, et cetera, face-to-face -face conversation, personal conversation is so important because you can take cues from that. People are much more civil. They want to find solutions. They want to. So I think it's really important to set up a, a cadence and a schedule as an entrepreneur, as a leader, to meet with your people, to talk with them, to get to know them. It doesn't mean you have to get to know them personally, but get to know their professional life, their professional aspirations. What do they want to get from life? And you can learn that somebody wants to do be, a, be in a more technical role. Somebody wants to be in a managerial role. Somebody wants to know customers. And maybe, a lot of times people make assumptions about what somebody wants and they don't even know them. And Doug, going back to the very beginning, you mentioned you've had a very international career, which is very exciting, of course, but you could have stayed in New York City. Uh, there are a lot of people who have stellar careers just in New York. So why venture? Why, why venture outside and, and decide to travel? Well, when I was growing up and I was in a very multicultural city and a state, New Mexico, and my grandparents uh, spoke multiple languages, I just had this bug that I wanted to travel and want to be international. And the first chance I really had to do it was when I was a student, a sophomore, And I spent a year abroad in Bogota, Colombia, and I learned how to speak Spanish. And what I realized then that there's a difference between visiting and traveling somewhere for a week or a few days and actually living there. And when you live in somewhere, you really can absorb the culture. You also have huge ups and downs. You know, if you think now you have some ups and downs in your life, when you move to a new country, you have the highest highs you've ever had and the lowest lows you've ever had. And so it, it creates this excitement in your life, this new approach to your, how you're going to live. And it's not for everybody. You know, it's a riskier proposition, but I loved it. I've benefited from it. I, I just feel like I have such a rich life having lived in Latin America for 10 years and Japan for six years and been able to know the world. And if I was going to look back on my life, that's one thing I would never change. As someone who always says that I'm a citizen of the world, I, I agree with you right there. <laughs> and, and so, Doug, last question before we go. When you think of your Wharton experience, what comes to mind? It's interesting you ask that because I had amazing experience there. For me, it was an inflection point in my life and from moving from being a data analyst, a, a researcher, into thinking about finance, about management, learning about what it's like to be in business in a different way. And that was something that for me was valuable. I love my finance classes and I discovered marketing. It was something I probably didn't know anything about. And I found it was one of my favorite classes was marketing and strategy and things were different. But I really, when you ask me about Wharton, I think about a couple of my professors, Jamshed Gandhi, who was an incredible finance professor that pushed you so hard. He really made you learn and use the Socratic method You never knew if he was going to call on you or not, so you had to be prepared, and you were learning so much in a class like that. But most importantly were the people. 
I'm still in touch with so many Wharton colleagues and my best friends are from Wharton. I know that we talked to you and I just talked a couple of minutes ago about being a citizen of the world. I know that anywhere I go in the world, I know that there's a friend of mine from Wharton that I can call on. Uh, one final example on that, when I moved to Japan and I was with Citigroup and I had to go into a very difficult situation, I hired a friend of mine from Wharton who at the time didn't have a job and it turned out to be the best decision I made. He was my partner. He was my sort of the guy that helped me navigate Japan. He taught me about how to be successful in the Japanese business community. Best decision I made was hiring another uh, Wharton alumni, somebody who I was close to, uh, who helped me really navigate Japan. And, and one of the reasons I was so successful there was because of that friendship. So at the end of the day, it comes back to people. Really fascinating stuff. Well, Doug, cannot thank you enough for joining us. I know I've learned a ton. I'm sure the audience will love this interview. And thank you. And, and do continue to stop by campus, particularly once the pandemic is over. Thank you, Miguel. And congratulations, pre-congratulations on your graduation. And I know you're going to have a fantastic career. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.